Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 404. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. So today is October 18th, 2023. You'll be hearing this a few days after that. Or if you're not listening when it first comes out, you'll hear it when you hear it. (laughs) So as I'm recording this right now, I'm reflecting on safety, trust, mistrust, fear, violence, hate, oppression, abuse, brutality, inhumanity, inhumane actions. And that may or may not be in the forefront of your mind this week, but in the cultural discourse right now in the United States, there is a lot of division around a conflict that's happening in another part of the world right now. And I'm not going to say where, because if you happen to be listening later, A similar conflict will be happening in another place at that time. So it's not necessarily about where it's happening, who it's happening to, who's doing what this week. I just wanted to talk about what is happening in our nervous systems that makes us feel good when we are pulling together against an enemy. You know, like if you lived in the United States when 9-11 happened, Everyone was in shock. Everyone was horrified. Everyone thought the way of life that was familiar up to that time was changed forever. And then how did our government address it? By saying, let's go attack the enemy. Let's find who's responsible for this and we will make them pay. And people joined together. Suddenly people felt great. Oh, we're all united. United we stand. Does anyone remember this back in 2001, people who really weren't all that nationalistic were suddenly putting American flags on their vehicles, displaying them everywhere. And it was a way of saying, I stand with America against this enemy. And it made people feel better. I remember I was like, wow, I've never felt this much unity in our country. And of course, I am not going to overlook the fact that the byproduct of that nationalism was a lot of xenophobia that our government has capitalized on since that time and used in its domestic and international policies. But I'm not going into that right now because this isn't really about politics. It's more about that coming together, feeling good when joined against an enemy. In my Trauma Therapist Network membership community today, we had our Q&A call, which is open-ended. And I just asked everyone how they were feeling because this current war that's happening in another part of the world is very directly impacting and indirectly impacting many of us who are members of Trauma Therapist Network. Many of you who are listening, people everywhere are impacted. And I will say that people were having trauma reactions. 
And yet some of us fit into one of the groups that was part of this situation. And some of us fit into another group that's part of the situation. And some of us have a foot in both. Some of us don't really have any connection to either of those groups other than the shared humanity and the horror at the violence and abuse, outrageously shocking violence that many of us are seeing. So it's like you're witnessing it. If you see photos, if you see videos, you hear descriptions. So I shared with my community that I, my stance is, and this is very clear, and this helps me stay centered. I am opposed to violence and abuse and oppression in all forms, no matter who's doing it to whom, where, when, why, or how. It's always not okay with me. And even when back in 2001, the U.S. wanted to avenge the acts of 9-11, I wasn't happy about that war that we began. I was, I didn't think it was going to help anything. I didn't necessarily agree with the rationale for it. I just knew that a lot of people were going to die. And I've never understood how that would make anything better. Bear in mind, I was raised by hippies. So it comes through. What stands out to me is that if we can remember our shared humanity, that's our answer. And, you know, if you heard my interview with Stephen Porges, the founder of Polyvagal Theory, a couple of weeks ago, I keep thinking about what he said. And it wasn't just what he said, but what I know about polyvagal theory and what I've learned from Deb Dana. And that is that when our nervous systems are in a reaction to trauma, for example, fight or flight, when a group of people are having the reaction of fight or flight, the fear spreads and it ripples out. It expands and the anger, you know, think about an angry mob. One person's upset and they're screaming about what happened. And next thing you know, other people are upset. Next thing you know, the whole mob, the whole group of people has become a mob and they're running towards somebody they want to fight with because they're all picking up on each other's energy from their nervous systems. In the same way, though, we can do that with love and safety and trust and connection and care. Our nervous systems are meant to be connected with other nervous systems. All of us are connected. We share in a common humanity. That is a foundational belief of mindful self-compassion. And it's something that I, I rely on in my philosophy of life to help me survive this stressful world. So I want to encourage you that if you are in that space of fear, pain, horror, helplessness, you can always bring yourself back to your center, tracking your nervous system, checking in with what it's reacting to in the moment and tending to it with what it needs right then. If you are in the place in the world where this current war is happening or another place in the world where there's a war happening, because as much as we're all outraged rightfully about what's happening in that one place, similar things are happening in other places too right now. And I just want to remind everyone that what the news wants us to focus on at a given moment is just what they're focusing on in that given moment. It's not the only thing happening. There's always kindness happening in places too, maybe not the same places, but even in the place where this current war is happening, I've heard about acts of kindness and how people are supporting one another. And that is what happens. People do come together. They have to because we need each other as humans. And when it really comes down to it and you need someone to save you, it really doesn't matter what, what the name of their country is that they live in or what their skin looks like or what their religious beliefs are. Human to human, we can all care for one another. We can all help each other and never forget that that makes a difference. So I had a different episode in mind to share with you this week, but in light of what's going on and after our conversation in our Q&A call today, which ended up being pretty much focused only on how we were feeling about what's happening right now, I decided that it would be more beneficial to share this episode, which is a replay 
of an episode from 2020, actually. That's when it was recorded. It was before the January 6th insurrection in the U.S. And at a time when we probably thought things couldn't get much worse, and then they did get worse. But anyway, I'm grateful to this week's guest, Sarah Payton, because she explains how in our nervous systems, why we feel good when we are turning against someone else. You know, because when people do violent things in such a cruel, uncaring manner, as if other humans are less than human, less than living beings, or just objects whose lives have no value, and any anybody can do this. We've seen it all around the world, everywhere. When that is happening, it takes us out again of our experience of compassion for another. We see someone doing something that seems so depraved and so horrific. It's just unimaginable. And we, we think of the person who did that as being other than human. And that's part of the problem is when we allow ourselves to other someone and they become less than human, then it doesn't matter what happens to them. So I hope that listening to my conversation with Sarah will help you make some kind of sense and find some hope for this fractured world that we're living in, that there can still be healing and recovery and connection and community again. That's what I'm hoping. I'm just continuing to send meta loving kindness to everyone affected by violence, war, oppression, abuse everywhere around the world. And when I feel helpless, I just pause. I picture in my mind whoever I was thinking about wishing that I could help. And I say the meta loving kindness mantra, which is, may you be safe. May you be happy. May you be kind to yourself. May you be free from suffering. And you can turn it towards yourself as well to recognize that it's really painful to want to help and not be able to do anything to fix a problem that's happening, a pain that someone's feeling. And so you turn to yourself and you say, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be kind to myself? May I be free from suffering? And if you follow the practice, the next step would be to think of your enemy, someone you don't like, whoever you feel is responsible for this horror and turn toward them and say, may they be safe. May they be happy. May they be kind to themselves. May they be free from suffering. If you don't feel you can do that right now, that's okay. I'm not judging. But the last piece of the practice is to say, may all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be kind to themselves. May all beings be free from suffering. So if you think that's corny, them, feel free to disregard, but it helps me. It helps me come back to center and it helps me remember my values. And it's really all I can do sometimes. So I'm grateful to you for listening. I hope you will find some hope and some belief that things can get better. And even that your nervous system can return to feeling safe, even in moments when there is danger all around. If you are living in a war zone, you have to have some sense of vigilance to be aware of your surroundings and what's happening. But even in that environment, it's possible to rest, to take a break, to have some breaths, to have a moment of connection. So thank you for being part of my community by listening to the podcast. And I'll be bringing you the conversation that I was going to share this week, next week unless something else happens. But until then, I hope you will be well. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. And today I am so thrilled to have the honor of interviewing a guest who was here with us back in 2018, Sarah Payton. Sarah, thanks so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Laura, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine and our listeners, I think, but I'm glad you enjoy coming here too. You are the author of Your Resonant Self and you have a new book coming out in May, which is already available for pre-order called The Resonant Self Workbook. 
I can't wait to talk to you about that and your work. But before we even dive into it, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Oh, thank you, Ray. Well, I'm a person who got really curious about why did my brain work the way it did and what was happening inside of my brain that was causing it to be so uncomfortable in there. And the way that I, I kind of managed that before I got to the point of starting to learn about the inside of the brain was that I just I, I was just an avid reader because as soon as I could get my eyes on a page, what I was starting to understand once I started to learn about the brain was I could get my dang default mode network turned off. And my default mode network, as your listeners probably know, is the part of the brain that carries the automatic voice. And uh, it's the part of the brain that's sewing us into our social lives, that's keeping a consideration of everything that we're juggling in terms of relationship and and what has to be done and who's going to do it and who needs to be connected with and and what's happening with the kids and is everybody doing okay and does our partner have depression and I mean it just all and, and have we committed terrible acts that are making us feeling feel ashamed it's just like a constant ongoing kind of internal tailor that's sewing us all together and the more trauma we've had the more the needle of the tradition Taylor literally runs through the trauma center of the brain, runs through the amygdala. And every time that we touch the sense of self, which is what the default mode network is doing, it's like we're giving ourselves an electric shock. So people learn to manage this in very different ways. You can learn to do it with addictions. You can do it with opioid addictions. You can do it with, with sugar addictions. You can do it with alcohol addictions. And you can do it with activities like always playing video games or always reading. And that's what I was. I was an always reader along with some other lovely chemical addictions. And if, and like, it was so intense that if, if I stopped my car at a stoplight, you'd grab the book that was beside me so that I could keep my default network from attacking me. It's a knockdown drag out kind of, a, like a kind of experience. And, uh, and so I, I started to have experiences that began to gradually change my default mode network. And I was like, what's going on? What's happening with these healing experiences? What do they mean? What? The brain can change? How cool is that? Neuroplasticity? What? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's a, a little bit of an overview of, of my journey. It's been a journey of discovery and gradually making the inside of my brain a nice place to live. Oh, gosh. You have such a pleasant demeanor. It's, it's almost surprising to hear that it was ever unpleasant inside your mind. But I know that we all have, you know, our struggles. And it's it's even silly for me to say that. But I appreciate so much that you shared that that's your experience, too. Because, you know, even when you were talking about the default network and all the or the default mode network and all the, you know, is everyone okay? Is, is my spouse depressed? Like, you know, that really made me think about how my brain works and the worry and fretting and, yeah, you know, just like these little, is everything okay? Is everything okay? So like checking and you know, it really made it easier to understand that concept for me. Yeah, that that amygdala is actually sitting in there, sending out these pulse waves like uh, uh, throughout the brain, just checking on everything. It's like always looking for signs that things are not good. So, yeah. so it needs a lot of warmth and kind of really good mothering. It's <laughs> what our amygdalas need. They need to be able to learn that we can, that we are strong enough and big enough to turn toward them, toward, toward the emotional centers of the self that carry the, the, the trauma scenes, you know, and the things that have been left behind by difficult experience. We need to, we need to develop a trust relationship, which is a little tricky to do, but is incredibly sweet work. Yes, your work has been so significant in um, what I have come to understand about healing trauma. Like, well, it's obviously significant in more than just me, but um, with with my clients, I find it's so powerful. Your the resonance 
that you talk about and, you know, that nurturing, mothering of our amygdalas, it's, um, it's so different from these like detached clinical, you know, techniques that, you know, we sometimes hear about like how to, how to move trauma through doing something versus mm-hmm. the, the nurturing warmth, which is something that just has to come through connection, right? Yeah. And I was so, I was so struck by, there's a, there's an epigeneticist up in Montreal named Moshe Gif, S-Z-Y-F. If anybody wants to look him up, I recommend his YouTube interviews rather than his scientific papers, unless you are by training an epigeneticist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But um, he, I was at a, at a conference with him and he said, our mother is in every cell of our prefrontal cortex. And I was like, what? Yeah. So I was like, okay, if we've got 86 billion neurons and the prefrontal cortex is roughly one third of the brain, then I have 27 billion neurons in my brain devoted to, to my mother, that are carrying my mother. And that was quite an intense realization. I was like, okay. I need some, I love my mom. My my mom passed on uh, some years ago and I love her still. And, but she was massively impacted by the trauma that she lived through as a little one to the point where um, she didn't often remember things that had happened and couldn't exactly track who I was sometimes. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, growing up in the shadow of a brain that was fractured by its own trauma, right? Yeah. So, so I was like, oh my goodness, my mother is in all of these cells of my prefrontal cortex. What does this mean for me and my future? <laughs> yeah. You're like, that's a scary I could just thought. Away from her and I would be fine. Call <laughs> <laughs> her on Sundays. <laughs> so, but I, I love sort of this modern metaphor that we have with updating our computer systems with new software. And a sense that we do get to update the moms that we carry within us. I often think of it as like that we get to, we get to heal our own internal mothers and we get to see the mothers that should, that should have been had they been totally supported and loved themselves and kept safe from trauma. So it's quite a journey to, to do mother upgrades, which I think is sort of the funny. Yeah, intention of all therapy in a way. Yeah, right. It's really, that's what it comes down to. (laughs) (laughs) Call it what we want, but that's what's really happening. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me as we were talking before the, the recorded part of our interview is thinking about how right now as we're talking, it's December 2020. And this episode, when people are hearing it, will be out in early March or late February 2021. Right now in the United States and really around the world, there's so much conflict and divisiveness and, you know, violence. And here in our country, politically, we're very divided. There's a lot of mistrust of people who have different views as well as the, you know, just the ongoing problem of systemic oppression and racism. And your work is about how we are interconnected. And right now we feel so divided as a, as a population. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how your work and this, what we're doing in our brains, how it all fits together with how disconnected we feel and maybe how we can reconnect. Yeah. Well, as you you mentioned in, in the introduction, I have the new book coming out, the Your Resonant Self Workbook. And um and this workbook comes from this wondering, really. It comes out of the wondering of why why do our brains do what they do? Why do we do things that seem self-defeating? Why do we have why do we cut ourselves off from others? I was reading a beautiful Rebecca Solnit article this morning where she said our human, our humanness, our humanity comes from our ability to, uh, to expand our circle of belonging out to people who don't look like us, out to people who don't think like us, out to people that don't uh, worship the same God we worship. Uh, she, she said, um, this is, in a way she was saying, this is our task. 
is to expand our circle of love. And and one of the things that stops us from expanding the circle of love is this, is is a is something that the human brain loves. It loves to blame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in my progressive moments, may love to blame Trump for all kinds of things. <laughs> and, and and folks who are Republicans may, in their particularly conservative moments, really love to blame progressives for all kinds of things. And this is this mobilization of blame and a mobilization also of, of the experience of disgust mm-hmm. is hugely important for us to begin to understand uh, what's happening in our world right now. So for the last four years, we've been either, you know, watching with great delight or, or watching with stupefied horror, the people who are, who have been running the show and the facial expression that we've been seeing more than any other is the facial expression of disgust. Mm-hmm. And this is a very powerful and divisive um, emotion, which I have the sense, I haven't actually looked at all of the current more conservative or, or right-wing leaders across the globe right now, but the ones that I have looked at, including the Prime Minister, yeah, including the fellow who's who's running Hungary, including Putin, and including Trump, used disgust uh, was almost a mastery that orchestrates a rising tide of exclusionary response. Let's let's keep the Syrian refugees out. Let's, uh, let's reclaim the, the white, make America great. Let's reclaim the white Russian world of, of, of ownership that the former Soviet Union had. Like, there's this, um, mobilization of, of a very vulnerable part of us as humans, which is uh, the disgust circuit or the disgust, the whole disgust apparatus in the human body, which which includes our facial expression, includes a, a visceral response. And, and when we admire and place our, our, our attention on a leader who is mobilizing the population with disgust, oh, it's so, it's so rewarding for human brains. We are so vulnerable to this kind of reward because it, it creates in-group, out-group. And in the in-group, out-group, we start to experience this rush of oxytocin and belonging that when we are part of the in-group, we get to feel when we look at the people in the out-group. So when the president of the United States speaks about immigrants with words that are connected to uh, large groups of, uh, of rodents or uh, swarms of insects, then what we're getting is we're getting this oxytocin reward. I mean, sometimes I just sit and spend some time mourning our human brains and their vulnerability to being moved toward divisiveness. Mm. And I'm just, I've been speaking for quite a little time now. Is this, uh, is this what you were thinking of when you asked? Yes, yes, very much. And, and it's, for one, everything you're saying is ringing very true to what I have observed, but also I don't know about the disgust circuit. And so I think that caught my attention. It's pretty interesting. You know, I'm just in a very basic way, and I hope you will expand on this. But what I'm thinking about is the oxytocin reward. And as soon as I think of oxytocin, I think of, well, I think of breastfeeding. (laughs) And when I think of breastfeeding, I think of nurturing mother. And it's interesting to imagine that we get a rush of the hormones that feel bonding when we are excluding others. Yeah. And then there is a host of, um, I'll speak about this host of after effects, and then you can bring me back to any questions you have about disgust itself. But there's a host of after effects. Because as soon as we, we otherize a group of people, then we no longer actually are looking at their facial expressions very closely. We start seeing them. And so we stop getting the feedback, the nuanced feedback about their humanness and about their emotions. 
we lose our empathy when we move into the in-group, out-group experience. The more strongly we have the oxytocin rush of belonging, the less brain resource we have available to be able to to be able to to perceive and understand and have empathy and compassion for other groups. So there are a lot of neurobiological after effects of the experience of having more power than someone else as a human. And the more that we have power imbalances, the more the, the less we read people that we consider to be below us in the power structure. It's just like a natural part of our human brain is this kind of leaving of, uh, of, of connection with others. And I think this is why Rebecca Solnit was saying that our human, that our humanness, that our humanity depends on us having an expanded circle of inclusion because then we're, then we're holding ourselves with humility, humility being the primary remedy for imbalance of power and the ways that it turns off human brains. It's so interesting. You know, this wasn't what I was expecting us to talk about, but just as an aside, it's like, you know, people are always saying, how can people turn a blind eye to the pain of people who are being separated from their children when they come to the border of our country? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, who could turn their backs on even the thought of those families being separated in that way. But then, you know, what you're talking about makes me understand in a small way that, you know, it's, first of all, it's kind of unconscious and it's happening in the brain as a way to help those people feel more connected with each other, I guess, the people who Mm -hmm. don't care about that or even want that, that type of separation to happen. Right. It's a bit like that's an unnoticed, unconscious side effect. Yeah. the creation of the circle of belonging. Those folks who aren't seeing it don't even know they aren't seeing it. If we think about Melania wearing her I don't care jacket when she went to the facility where there was family separation, then we can kind of feel how much unconsciousness is a part of the picture. Like there's not even a conscious awareness of of it as being uh, undesirable or of it impacting people's humanity. The the power of oxytocin and inward belonging is so great. Wow. Yeah. So, and, oh, I just want to say that it moves in, 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 in research that's been done with undergraduates. For example, when they look at somebody, a picture of someone who's homeless, they don't even put that person in the person category in their brain. Their brain moves them into the category of, of, of rubbish instead of in the category of humanness with greater and, and lesser degrees of, of uh, contempt and disgust connected with the, the imagery that's being used. Wow. We don't even know, you know, we don't even know that we are, that our humanness is being turned off. Therapist, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. So this is interesting because it kind of feels paradoxical to, you know, we were talking about the, we were beginning to talk about how we're all interconnected. And this is a way that we feel connected by being disconnected. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. And and as we, you know, as we come with our humility and allow other people to be just as important you know, in, in the world as we are, to let uh, the groups that we don't usually see, whether those are homeless people or whether those are people who wear national costumes that look foreign or whether that's people who have a different skin color or people who have a different worship, a different sense of God. If we if we allow ourselves to truly feel into the the joining and and the welcome of each individual person, we often think about how about how our world devalues so many so many voices, so many brains, so many hearts that could be giving us so much. What you know, I like to imagine. Living in a world where every voice really does matter, where a grandfather in Peru matters just as much as an Aboriginal person in Australia matters just as much as uh, somebody who's sweeping the street in Tokyo matters just as much as, you know, as someone who's serving in Congress. This sense of an intention for inclusion is of great importance to to our uh, to our being able to remain emotionally alive to everyone it's such a funny request you know our brains have kind of a natural limit at about 150 people where beyond that people can move into a blur of humanness but uh, a blur of humanness is much more inclusive for us than thinking that beyond that people move into a blur of whiteness or move into a blur of just christianity and that everyone else doesn't really exist so we get to we get to really leverage our human capacity it to to live out any values that we have of inclusion and of mattering and of paying respect and having humility with each person that we meet. It's it's quite well founded in research as well as being supported by most major religions. Well, it's it's beautiful to put the philosophical and the, you know, values into practice in neuroscience. Yeah. And I had started out saying that one of the reasons that I wrote the Your Resonant Self Workbook was because I was out in the world and I was teaching the science of self-compassion and how we learn to turn toward ourselves. And some people just weren't able to do it. They just, they were just stymied. They had, they, they would read the book, they would do the meditations, but they didn't get the shifts that they were looking for. And, and as I was working, I started to realize, oh, we have agreements with ourselves. We have agreements with ourselves that stop us from moving into self-compassion. And we also have agreements with ourselves. Like if we have an agreement with ourselves, not to believe that we that we belong absolutely, that we matter absolutely, then we are walking around with an internal sense of insecurity, which makes us vulnerable to the mobilization of disgust to create in-group out. And because uh, it's so reassuring for our sort of oxytocin-starved systems that we get to belong because we're, for example, white. Or that we get to belong because we're Christian rather than Muslim. Or we get to belong because we're Muslim rather than Christian. You know? <laughs> Whatever the belonging is, it can be such a huge relief to a body that doesn't, that doesn't know how to agree to belong. And so that's what that Your Resonant Self Workbook um, allows and, and supports is an exploration of the different kinds of agreements that we have that stop us with ourselves, that we have that stop us from, from you know, believing these very foundational things. Again, you know, the intention of therapy for people to have a sense of mattering, an absolute sense of mattering for people to have a sense of belonging, for people to to know that their voice matters, to feel the capacity to mobilize, to take action, to be able to do something as simple as voting or to do something as complex as running for office. We want these things. We want an engaged and alive 
populace to be able to to help counteract some of the forces that you were mentioning when you brought up the subject of today's world, you know, the forces of systemic oppression, the forces of systemic racism, and of course, this divisiveness that we're so deeply in the presence of. Yes. Well, I'm, I am really curious to ask you about these agreements with ourselves. How, where do we all have them? Do some of us have them? And how do we get them if we do? Yes, we all have them. Everybody has them. And they are, in a way, they are, again, to use this metaphor of software, they are a program that's that we've inserted that allows us to have a shortcut response to complex experiences and complex traumas. So... This brings us uh, on an almost cellular level to the work of Beatrice Beebe, who is a researcher and her team, who, who are researchers in New York City. And we mentioned Beatrice Beebe when we spoke together in the Your Inner Resonance Therapy chat, Laura. So it's not a completely new new person in, in our space. But Beatrice Beebe, as you remember, was the woman who discovered that we, that we by the age of four months, start to edit our facial expression vocabulary in, 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 to bring it in accordance exactly with what our mother can easily do and reflect with her facial expression vocabulary. So if our mother doesn't do sadness, then our face stops doing sadness unless, uh, great grief forces uh, its way through, but just in the regular nuanced, you know, ways that faces express emotion. By the age of four months, we stop expressing sadness. If the mother never gets angry and won't, turns away from or does not reflect an angry face for the baby, then the baby stops doing anger. And some of the things uh, that people may notice, this is something I noticed myself, was that I, I, uh, when I was angry, I would cry. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I noticed was that when I would cry, I would try not to cry. And I could feel it, my my mouth kind of writhing. I would cry, but my mouth would be trying to smile. And sadness takes our uh, the corners of our mouth down when we're feeling sad. You can just sort of pull them down a little bit. You can feel in your body a response. Our body is wired to reflect viscerally what our face does. Like we're in this interesting continual loop between body response and facial expression. So what the body, so for example, if we have somebody pull their their eyebrows together in an angry expression, even if they're not angry, their heart rate will go up. It's there's a, there's an absolute sort of interwoven cause and effect both between what the body's experiencing and how the face wants to express that and what the face is expressing and how the body tries to, to go right along with that. And, uh, and so it's quite a profound thing for us to have facial expressions completely wiped out of our uh, emotional expression. Yeah, I'm deep in thought. And um, <laughs> I think I think one question that came to mind for me when you were asking, when you were talking about the facial expressions, Beatrice Beebe's work is you kind of said how the baby learns not to show the expression that the mother doesn't resonate with. But what about if the mother's expressions I'm thinking of a very fearful mother. Does it change the way the baby's face appears more, you know, to show more fear or? I think that's one of her conclusions, although that was less what she was. Uh, that's something that I haven't found precisely in her writing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Quite transparently, quite transparently, her work moves me so deeply mm. that I, uh, that I can read about a, a paragraph, a paragraph a month is usually enough for me. <laughs> I know what you mean. I have, I have books like that and authors like that too. It's like a small chunk goes a yeah. long way. Yeah. And her her work uh, talking about the characteristics of um, of disorganized attachment mm-hmm. was 
that I, I spent about three years just really focused on to create a, a bit of an integration of that for myself. And it was, it was, a, it was a revelation to work with it so deeply. So she may very well have written about an answer to this question and I may not have found the answer yet. So, but what we do know is, for example, if a mother is very fearful and her face just stays in a fear response all the time, then that's one of the things that people consider a, a precursor for disorganized attachment. You'll remember yes. maybe Bonnie Badenrock and, and other authors writing that um, the disorganized attachment comes from the parent being terrifying or terrified. Yes. So we integrate into ourselves this deep sense of the world not being safe, of the world being irresolvably dangerous. And any kind of irresolvability lands quite harshly in an infant's body. So irresolvable grief, irresolvable fear, unquenchable rage, all of these things take babies away from their own natural fluidity and their own dance of exploration, self-understanding, and of the kind of connection that leads to secure attachment. So Sarah, the agreements with ourselves that you mentioned, yeah, are they made in that in that first four months? Or yes, thank you for bringing us back to that. That was exactly where I was going. <laughs> there are all kinds of agreements that are made in those first four months, and one of the agreements, one of the types of agreement that's made, takes us back to our conversation about. Stephen Porges and the hierarchy of safety that comes with an understanding of how important it is for us to have a yes answer to the question, am I safe, do I matter, am I safe, do I matter? When we get a yes answer to the question, am I safe, do I matter, then the nervous system shifts gear into social engagement. And you'll remember that social engagement does all kinds of wonderful things for the human body. It, it makes the immune system work really well. It causes us to run on oxygen instead of on cortisol. The red blood cells literally pick up more oxygen when we have a sense of being safe and mattering. And, um, and when we have this experience of being safe and, and mattering, our brains are working at their best and we have a lot of cognitive flexibility and, and we can make good decisions, take a lot of things into account, handle complexity. There's just all kinds of lovely benefits of the nervous system being in social engagement and having a sense of mattering and belonging. And of course, you'll, uh, and to tie that back into our conversation about belonging before, uh, if you have a contract that says you don't matter, but you get to belong to, to a group of white people, then all of a sudden uh, your nervous system gets to work better and your immune system gets to work better. So again, we were talking about some of the rewards that come from um, going into those circles of belonging and circles where others are excluded. So um, quite profound rewards that we have that, that we need to counteract, you know, the humility. But the contracts can take us into a frozen state. So mothers will turn away, not just from sadness, not just from anger, not just from fear, but we know that avoidantly attached mothers will turn away from their baby's joy, that they'll diminish their baby's joy instead of supporting and encouraging the expression of life energy. And maybe you had the experience of having clients who say, I'm too much. I've always been too much. I'm always too much. This is the voice of uh, this baby, of a baby whose mother has turned away from joy and diminished joy. Now, a contract begins to be formed, an unconscious contract, an unconscious agreement, where the child who has joy that's turned away from, the result when someone turns away from our joy, our joy is essentially dyadic. When someone turns away from our joy, then a shame hit comes, cortisol. Yeah. And uh, some people say that cortisol, that shame is the emotion that brings the largest flow of cortisol of any human emotion. It's like we're getting um, a neurobiological, uh, like 
cattle prod to our heart, the flow of cortisol. And we go, oh my God, this happened. My mother turned away from me or my parent or caretaker turned, turned away from me because I was too much. I have to be less. And we create, uh, with the help of the memory of machine, we create internal prohibitions that stop us from expressing our full self because we never want to have to have that, that jolt of shame again. We want to try to figure out how we can behave that will allow us to belong to our circles and to be able to have that experience of being safe and mattering that lets everything work well. Because our very first circle of belongings, our circle of belonging with our moms. So yes, we start creating these unconscious agreements very early. Um, and then we continue, everyone continues to make these as we go through present time with any kind of trauma or experience where we're not fully accompanied. We'll try to make up an agreement we can keep with ourselves that will keep us safe, that will keep us safe from shame, that will keep us safe from humiliation, that will keep us safe from exclusion. Is this making sense, Laura? Yeah, very much. And and now I'm just so curious about how, because when I think about something that starts so early, I know that as a therapist, it can be very hard for us to reach that information because mm-hmm. it's, you know, held non-verbally and it can be very hard for any client to be able to access that information, to be able to tell you, you know? Yeah. So now I'm curious about, so gosh, how, how do we reprogram those contracts, I guess? <laughs> yes, yes. No, first thing, I mean, something that therapists really notice with their clients quite soon into the therapy relationship, they'll notice, oh, this client can't get mad. This client is afraid of anger. Mm-hmm. Oh, this client never expresses fear. It's very interesting to begin to include a curiosity about disgust in our uh, work with clients because if someone has a frozen disgust circuit, which can happen from, um, from early experiences of our disgust not being okay, then what happens? is that they won't know when things are too much. Part of what disgust does when it's a health, when it's in its healthy place, when it's in its right place, rather than being mobilized by leaders who use it to create in-group, out-group experiences, one of the things that disgust does is it gives us a healthy sense of disgust, gives us our boundaries, lets us know when somebody is intruding or violating us. And if we've got a frozen disgust circuit, if we've made an agreement with ourselves not even to feel disgust anymore, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, then what happens is that um, we can't tell, we can't find our own no. It can happen with rage. It can also happen with disgust that we'll lose our no. Um, and That I see so much, so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. So part of what we can welcome as uh, when we're working with people is we can welcome in a way the return of nausea. If we're not used to welcoming nausea, but in the old days before I started to understand this about disgust when I was working with someone uh, and they said, oh, I'm feeling nauseous. I was just I'm feeling panic. I would like try to get them away from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would think, oh no, I'm making them sick. But instead, if we go, oh good, we need the nausea. And a pa- so a part of what's happening in the therapy experience is that the therapist has a wider window of welcome for emotions than the mother originally had. The therapist is saying, hey, where's the anger? Hey, where's the fear? Hey, where's the disgust? And welcoming it when it comes, which is a beautiful counteractive experience to these early experiences that are pre-verbal. Because much of what's happening in the therapy relationship is also non-verbal. Mm-hmm. And so becoming aware of our own facial expression vocabulary is of great importance. When we're sad, does our face get to show sadness or do we try to hide it? Um, do we get to have an outrage and fury on behalf of our clients 
um, not enough, not in, expressed in a way that would scare them, but in a way that gives force and the emphasis to our longing for their protection and a longing for something better for them. It's quite, uh, without even knowing it, these are the tools that every therapist is is using. Mm, yeah. And when you start to look at the contract work, if you're starting to get interested, the contract work actually is quite extraordinary for allowing previously unallowed circuits to come back online. So if we say, you know, do you have a contract? Sarah, do you have a contract not to feel anger? And then people will often say, yes. I even remember the day that I did that, <laughs> that contract when there was the middle of a domestic violence scene at home. And I was like, I'm never going to be that person. You know, this mm-hmm. is a later traumatic experience of closing down uh, emotional expression. But people will often have access to, once we start to ask, people often can touch the deep in order tools that come with the contracts. I will not be sad in order to never burden anyone. And of course, the person that we're never burdening is probably our mother, but it gets globalized out. So if we hold, you know, you said, what do we do with things that are nonverbal? And what we do is we, we remember that the amygdala has no sense of time, that the amygdala, we talked about this in our, in our first conversation, that the amygdala has no sense of time and it creates trauma tangles. And what's hard about that is then that people have to live with PTSD, the intrusion of traumatic memory. But what's wonderful about that is that the amygdala is forever available for resonant support and healing. I like that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when you said that about the never being like that with the domestic violence scene, mm-hmm. you know, I immediately thought of for myself when I was a kid, um, not a domestic violence scene, fortunately, but it was just a moment of thinking, I am not going to cry at school. (laughs) Like, I think I was probably like seven and, you know, saying this year I will not cry at school. And, you know, like reevaluating at the end of the year. Well, I didn't quite make it, but I'm going to try again next year. I will never, I will not cry at school. And, and once I learned how to, you know, somehow learned, like, it wasn't like I did it like, okay, step one, step two, step three. But when I learned how not to cry, when I felt like crying, I was so proud of myself. I was like a triumph. I conquered the, you know, sensitivity that I was always told was too much. So that resonated so much for me. Like I can remember just making as such a young child, that conscious decision to try to change that about myself. And, you know, of course, later it became problematic that, you know, I couldn't access what I felt. Right, right. It's a it's a beautiful example. So if we got to work with you with the unconscious contract process, we would be saying, um, so is the contract, Something like, I love solemnly swear to my essential self that I will not, it's almost like we have to not, not feel. Mm -hmm. I will not feel what I feel. Mm -hmm. And then we would say, in order to, and then you would fill in the blank there. In order to, you can if you want to. Yeah, I think it was to be safe, just to to be safe. It sounded like it might also be belonging to be safe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the last part of the contract is such an interesting part is the, are the words, no matter the cost to myself. Mm-hmm. And with those words, we begin to feel into the consequence and, and the after effects of, of the contracts, the cost of the contracts that we've made. I will not feel what I feel, not the cost to myself. And then once we have that, See, it's so unusual to use words to describe these these internal agreements that we have. Once we have used the words, then we get to then we get to say, "Essential self of law." Did you hear the contract? <laughs> and that part of us gets to speak. Oh, sometimes the part says, "No, I didn't hear the contract." Then you say it again. But <laughs> often the part says, "Yeah, I heard that contract." And then we get to say, "Do you want to keep it? Do you like it? Is it good for Laura now?" And no. that no. saying, "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> 
And then I find it very useful myself to actually formally release the contract and to say, I release you, Sarah, from this contract. I revoke this vow. And then to say, what's, what will we do instead? And instead, I give you my blessing too. And what would your blessing for yourself be? Go at it instead of this. To feel all my feelings. And to enjoy belonging with people who also care about you. Yeah. You too. <laughs> and to create, to create a community where people get to have their feelings and yeah. share and talk about it and know how important it is. <laughs> yes. Which is what you've done. I'm trying. <laughs> Well, that's so beautiful and really powerful. And it makes me wonder with the workbook, is it meant to be worked by someone on their own or is it meant to be worked with a therapist together? Um, Just like the first book, the Your Resonant Self book, it's very much available either either or Mm -hmm. for people to do with therapists, for people to do with peer groups, for people to do on their own journaling processes. I've even had people start to do this kind of work on with their cell phone recorders mm-hmm. to record their own process and listen to it or record their the, the voice of the part of the, the voice of the part of the self that has the contract and then they get to listen to it and think about it. Yeah, so there are many creative ways to work. And the more severe our trauma is, the more we need therapy support. I mean, I, yeah, I have really severe trauma and I love therapy. (laughs) I love therapy too. Yeah. It's like, where else can you just talk about yourself? (laughs) I know. (laughs) And someone just wants to listen, no matter how much you want to talk about yourself. They just, they want to hear it, you know? And they're wondering about us with warm curiosity. And they become a part of the upgrade, of the mother upgrade. That's the most wonderful thing. You know, you find people who are resonant and who understand us. And they become a part of the new, the new 27 billion neurons. Mm-hmm. And that's so powerful too, that whole image of the prefrontal cortex that you mentioned with the billions of cells and the mother mm-hmm. being 27 billion neurons, because it just makes me think whenever I hear about epigenetics, of course, I think about intergenerational transmission of trauma. Yeah. And when we replace or reshape the cells that weren't mothering us the way we needed uh, with ones that are more nurturing, then we have more to pass on. More to pass on. It changes our children's lives. And really, I mean, as therapists, it changes the lives of everyone that you are holding. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone they interact with. And that is the interconnectedness. That is the interconnectedness. Yes, yes, yes. And it allows for an expanded sense of belonging so that we don't have to create our belonging in divisiveness. Mm -hmm. That is so my wish for us Mm -hmm. as a culture to stop trying to spread violence and war around the world and spread connection and community. Yeah. And thoughtful, long-term consideration of our actions. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And how we're even connected to our, our planet. Yes. Yeah. Sarah, I am so grateful for the work you're doing. Truly, it's very unique and really, I know it's um, influenced by so many others and you you always share that, but what you're doing isn't like what anyone else is doing that I've seen. So I'm really grateful for, for what you've created to share this with all of us. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm just delighted. I love our conversations. Me too. So where where can people get the new book? I know it's in pre-order availability right now. Yeah, at the, at your friendly online bookseller. So if you're someone who enjoys Amazon, it's, uh, it's uh, listed for pre-order on Amazon and other online booksellers. And, and it's coming out, it will be sent out on May 25th. So if you order events and you'll get the first copies as they come out from the press. Wonderful. And then for everyone who just can't wait, if they don't have the Your Resident Self book, 
that's already available. Yes, yes, that's there. That's uh, uh, very available. And, um, and can you, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> I was just going to say, can you tell everyone where they can find all the good stuff you're doing? Oh, yes. It's at uh, sarahpayton.com now. A new working website where your products will be delivered to you without the intervention of my beloved help desk person. (laughs) (laughs) We just rolled out the new website this last week. So it's very exciting. sarahpayton.com. Congratulations on that. And I know that's a big undertaking. and, And I know also that you have many offerings on your website. Will you just briefly tell people kind of what type of stuff they can find there? Yeah, there are, there are a lot of webinars about any subject that you might imagine would be interesting, ranging from the neuroscience behind cutting and what we can do relationally and with resonance to begin to remedy a series of presentations about attachment and Beatrice Phoebe's work and how it has an impact for us as adults and how, what we can do about it. Lots of presentations about uh, different kinds of emotions and an entire 90-minute presentation on disgust, which is wonderful and life-changing. Mm-hmm. So there are all kinds of presentations like that and then also live offerings with the kind of um, work that I do with groups, doing family constellation work, even online. And, uh, and yeah, what, how, how do we make our brains good places to live? Oh gosh. And everything that I've experienced of your work has been wonderful and incredibly helpful. So um, I encourage everyone to go check out your website. Thank you, Laura. Well, Sarah, I just want to thank you again for returning to Therapy Chat today. Thank you so much. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.